Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Let's get started. So let's look at some of the I think the salient passages out of John 10, 22 through 38. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. Yeshua was walking in the temple area. And then the Jews surround him and say, are you the one? Are you going to hold us in suspense? And he said, I already told you. You don't believe me. The works that I do in the Father's name, these testify me. Notice he's not talking about miracles necessarily here. Healing the sick, multiplying bread, those sorts of things. He's not necessarily referencing those. Those would not really be a sign because the Jews understood it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. You have to do the works of the Father. You have to be obedient to the word. That's what sets you apart. You can do all the miracles in the world, but if you're not doing the word, then we know what arena that you have drawn upon in order to perform those miracles. And Yeshua is reminding them of this. He says, I'm doing the works of the Father. I'm being obedient to the word, but you're not believing me. And we walk ourselves. We've done it ourselves. And we walk with people who read the word and don't believe it. And he says, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. Now, what do we know about the battle between the angel and Jacob? It started with sheeps. (laughs) He says, my sheep, listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He came as a shepherd and a robber. And Yeshua is saying, hey, if it's my sheep, a robber can't take them. Esau can't take my sheep. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given to me, given them to me is greater than all. No one. He says that twice. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Remember when there's repetition in Scripture, it typically means there was two fulfillments or will be. And so at this point, they're ready to stone him for blasphemy. And they say, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Yeshua answered them, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are God's. And that's a horrible English translation, by the way. I don't know who decided... I said, you are God's was the best translation. It's not. I said, you are Elohim. What is Elohim? If he called them Elohim, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be nullified, are you saying of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of Elohim? And then he goes back and he starts, if you don't believe the works. And so what is he saying here? He's saying that Elohim is dual purpose word. It can mean Elohim with a big E, the creator God, or it can mean Elohim with a small E. And there's other definitions for that, like judge, minister, magistrate, important person, somebody who has authority over something. Most likely, you know, the the element of being a judge is also worked in there. Judge is an important definition of Elohim. So you have to know from the context whether you're talking about Elohim with a big E or Elohim with a small E, because there is a world of creation difference between the two. There's only one Elohim. Every other Elohim in the universe is a created and appointed being. And Yeshua is pointing this out. He's saying, if you're using the fact that 
I'm making myself out to be God based on that scripture, then you're misreading it. Because in context, that's not what it means. Elohim is not calling the sons of Israel God or gods, either one. He's calling them appointed ministers. They have a divine purpose. They have a calling. That's what the context is saying. And he's saying, if I'm guilty, you're guilty. If I'm blaspheming, you're blaspheming. If you're going to use that as a proof text, take them to school and hermeneutics. But so many times we do that. We don't bother to go back and say, what was the Hebrew word and what is the context for this? Because their argument made no sense once he goes back and he cites to them Psalm about being sons of Elohim. But we can see that Yeshua, he is that flame of fire that collects us in the wilderness. He is here to protect the father's sheep. And this is what's in his answer. I have sheep who know my voice. And if they know my voice, they will listen to me, which means they will obey the father. And then they will re-enter the garden of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their inheritance. And then the Midrash, it goes on, it tells how Jacob kept going back and forth across the stream all night, which is apparently part of the wrestling. And he would go back, he would think he had all the sheep and there'd be more sheep. And so he'd work, 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 get those sheep back over. And then he'd go back. There's more sheep or all these sheep coming from. Finally, they say toward daylight, he realizes this is sorcery. These aren't really my sheep. I don't know where these sheep are coming from. And they say, Finally, once he's like, oh, this is an illusion. This is a sorcerer. He's he's tapping into something here to make me see what I'm seeing. And he says, sorcery, sorcery. You are a sorcerer for sorcerers are successful at night. When are we most vulnerable to the seduction of the enemy? And the night of the exile, because we want to be like the other nations. And Jacob realizes at this point, I don't have to keep going back across this stream to get my sheep. My sheep know my voice. They've been walking for, with me since they were born. Since they were born, these sheep have followed me. They know the sound of my voice. What were Adam and Eve afraid of in the garden? The sound of the voice walking. Jacob said, these sheep know me. I, I don't have to go get them. They would follow me. They would obey me. They would follow me. These belong to another. He says, these sheep, these are Esau's. These belong to the red one. And so once they say this illusion was discovered, the angel knows the day is breaking. And that's when he reveals himself to Jacob as an angel. that He's not really a shepherd. He's not really a robber chief. That this was a divinely ordained interaction between himself and Jacob. And this is where we get into the names. Genesis 32, 26 through 30, Jacob says, let me go for the dawn is breaking. Or the angel says, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. So he said to Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have contended with Elohim and with men and have prevailed. And, and here's kind of the structure. Did he literally fight with God? And could he have survived? Not for a second. Not even thinking about it. Could he survive? <laughs> but if this Elohim, small e, angel has been dispatched with this mission to confront Jacob at the stream to cause him to prevail over the red one, to prevail over Esau's angel. Then he has striven with Elohim because that aspect of Elohim was placed upon that angel for Jacob to recognize 
This is a judgment right here that I have wrestled here. And he says, Jacob asks him, please tell me your name. And he says, why why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he says, I have seen Elohim face to face, yet my life has been spared. So the question there is, is it Elohim with a big E or is it Elohim with a small E? Did he literally see the face of Elohim or did he see that aspect of Elohim in the angel itself, the one who's dispatched? We're told in Exodus 33, 20 from Elohim, you cannot see my face for mankind shall not see me and live. Even Moses had to have a little special (laughs) spacesuit, right, to be able to be in that presence. And this is where the rabbis are kind of, I think, teasing out. This wasn't God he's literally fighting with. He was dispatched by Elohim, but this is an Elohim with a small E, a judge, an angel, a sent messenger. Because when Jacob meets Esau, he says, no, please, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my gift from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. And they're saying, as one, like one. And they're saying, that's what happened there. Seeing this angel was like seeing the face of God. And it said that your ministering angel has your appearance. It looks a lot like you, or you look like it. I don't know how that works. But Esau's ministering angel looked enough like Esau that he's saying, it's like the guy I fought with all night last night. So just as a review, remember, angels are malakim, means they're sent to do something, but they don't have to be angels. Anybody who's sent to do something can be a malak. They are created beings, and they are not to be worshipped. They don't want to be worshipped, right? They will reject if you try to worship them. They're being sent under authority. Some of them are appointed to nations, to domains, like the four winds. Uh, You have the angel with the power over fire. You see that in Revelation. In fact, you get a lot of the associations in the book of Revelation as to what angels are in charge of. They might be over a population center. It might be your individual angel, ministering angel. But Daniel gives us a glimpse into this world. So we, we understand the dynamics of it. So we don't waste our time running around rebuking things, which are actually angels dispatched to do a job. We're we're casting out demons when they're not. They're just created beings doing their jobs. Not that there aren't demons that should be cast out. But often we see an obstacle, we just want to cast it out. Like, well, you know, the donkey picked up pretty quick. You're not just going to cast out this angel as Bilam's riding along. The donkey recognized this angel can kill us. Bilam's a little slower to pick up on that. And often we're a little slow to pick up on the fact that when we face an obstacle, It may not be something to be cast out, bound, and loosed, and whatever it is we're trying to do that we learned when we were Pentecostal. Mm -hmm. Instead, it might be a divinely ordained messenger with a mission to hold us up for a period of time, or to speed us along on our journey, or to redirect the journey. They don't typically have conversations with you, but when you see those in Scripture, you pay attention because not one word will be wasted. They don't waste time. They're they're not multitaskers. They will do one thing. And they're only interested in that one thing. So they're not going to ask, how are the kids? You know, um, you know, what's the weather forecast tomorrow? They don't care. 
There's no small talk with an angel. This is what I came to do. As it's a very powerful way of communicating. You know, if you just say what you mean and mean what you say. In our perception, sometimes there is resistance when an angel is sent with a message or a mission on our behalf, we might pray and pray and pray and pray. In our perception, this is taking a long time. In their perception, it's not really <laughs> what's time to an angel. Uh, they're not going to be late. That's, I guess, the only thing we can tell ourselves to comfort ourselves. Whenever they get here, it's not going to be late. It'll be right on time. But Daniel had this, what was it, like 21 days it took. And finally, he draws in Michael to help Gabriel and they break through the Prince of Persia. Why would the Prince of Persia resist a message from Gabriel? Authority and power. He's the Prince of Persia. That's his domain. And what Daniel is praying for is going to pretty much see the end prophetically of the reign of Persia. You see how they're single-minded? They're focused on this is my job. And so somebody has to come and intervene named Michael. And that's a wondrous name. We're going to look at that because it's beautiful why Michael is the one to go through. Where he comes from, where he's going, and what does that have to do with us, Israel in the wilderness? So when you're trying to figure out the Elohim thing, always check your contacts to make sure you know whether you're reading about Elohim the creator or a sent person, angel with a mission, if that makes sense. Um, or a judge, somebody making a judgment in a particular case. And the reason we want to be careful how we speak, if we start binding and loosing stuff in realms we can't see, we might be getting ourselves in trouble. Second Peter 2.10, it says, especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt passion and despise authority. Remember these angels, these beings, they're all about authority. Reckless, self-centered, they speak abusively of angelic majesties without trembling. And that's why I pointed out in the Michamocha during the prayer service, where it talks about Nedar Bakodesh, the Adar quality of Adonai, which is majesty. He will place some of that majesty up on the angel. And so when he dispatches that angel to do what it needs to do, we, if we were able to actually see the angel, we would see the majesty of the throne reflected in the angel. The same way Jacob could see Esau reflected in the face of Esau's angel. Same thing. If this dispatch is coming from the throne, it will have the majesty of the throne. It will have that Adar reflection, like Osefele, one who works wonders. That is the one with Manoah. Where he says, why are you asking my name? Seeing it's wonderful. It's Fele. Well, that is one of the names of Adonai, Osefele. He's being dispatched with that aspect of the Holy One. Jude 1.8, it says, in the same way these people also, dreaming, defile the flesh. See how they're getting into the realm of uncleanness? They reject authority. Again, that's the commonality there. They, they will not recognize realms of authority, and they speak abusively of angelic majesties. They may not be Elohim, but they will bear some of his majesty in their mission, which is kind of like the, the warrant in the hand, so to speak. If you're going to dispatch a deputy to go execute a warrant on the sheriff's behalf, he has that badge. He has some of the sheriff's majesty to validate the mission. So they're appointed authorities. And it should be atypical for us to wrestle with these. It's atypical in scripture when you see someone wrestling 
with an angelic majesty. And once we kind of figured out what was going on there, we saw why he had to, because of what that majesty represented to Jacob and his descendants. Because theoretically, if Jacob didn't prevail in that battle, how could the house of Israel ever prevail over the beast in Revelation? If you're, you think you're having trouble with one of these, pray to their creator. Don't deal with them. You'll know if they, they're supposed to have a dialogue with you. Rare, far in between. Do you see that in scripture? But if you feel like you're having trouble from another realm, appeal to the creator. This is why you, you know, you're praying in Yeshua's name, in his authority. He has this divine authority, he has this majesty, and they will respond to that. Unless this is something the Holy One told them to do, and they're not going to move. You are. You'll, you'll mess with it to your destruction, is what Peter and Jude are saying. So unless this thing is ordered to confront you and have a conversation, you probably shouldn't be having conversations with them, right? It's very unusual. And uh, that's kind of the, the summation of what is it about an angel's name? Typically, it will reflect some aspect of Adonai. He will place that aspect upon that angel. And therefore, that angel can go and do that deed, deliver that message with that attribute of Adonai. Um, we're not told, really, what the angel's name is that Jacob wrestled with. Jewish tradition says it was Samael. No way of verifying that. I mean, you can look into Enoch, the pseudepigrapha, but that means fake name. So I'm always suspicious <laughs> when something's title is fake name. Um it can be informative, though. It, it can help give you some context. Um, but just you have to read it like a novel, like Left Behind of the, you know. <laughs> you don't know how much of it is fiction and how much of it isn't, right? So you have to be very circumspect as you filter through, like, the Book of Enoch or Yeshua or some of these others that just they're not validated in, in terms of purpose. But it appears that if you know the angel's name, it's possible you can discern what aspect of Adonai you're dealing with, such as Pele, this wonderful, miraculous message. You're going to have a son, and you're going to call him Shimshon, Samson, because he's going to be a type of the Messiah. Uh, Gabriel is the strength of El. That reflects the attribute of El Gibur, which is another name of Adonai. So let's look at what's going on with Daniel, and then it's going to help us understand how we go up from the wilderness. And this is where I was talking about Daniel chapter 10. So we'll skip through here for the sake of time. Gabriel tells Daniel, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was standing in my way for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I'd been left there with the kings of Persia. Then he said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am leaving, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is recorded in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Now, there's those three verses have vital information in them. The kingdom of Persia was under the domain of the prince of Persia. In Hebrew, that's Sar, prince, like Sarah, princess. Uh, Sarai, my princess. Well, a Sar is a prince. In this case, it's a celestial 
prince. This is some sort of created celestial being. Doesn't mean it's divine. There's only one. This is a created being. His domain is Persia, which is in power at this time. It's one of the beast kingdoms, and Daniel's standing there in that beast kingdom. Why would this king, this prince, not want Daniel to receive the message from Gabriel? Once it's delivered, you know that kingdom's coming down. And he's telling you that last verse there tells you why. Uh, or the second one, he says the prince of Greece is about to come. There is a Tsar, there is a prince over the next beast kingdom, which is going to conquer Persia. So he says, now I have to go fight against the prince of Persia because he's not going to like this news. His kingdom's going down and Greece is about to come up. The prince of Greece is going to like that news, but the prince of Persia is not. And so I don't know how they do it. Do they argue? Well, I mean, you know, they're not human beings. So, <laughs> yeah. What do they call those? Uh, the lightsabers. <laughs> I don't know how they fight. Uh I'm sure it's a sight to behold, but he basically has to take the message. You're coming down. And so even though you've been given charge over Persia, this authority in terms of prevailing as a beast kingdom is coming to an end. Now you will be under the authority of the prince of Greece. You'll still be in charge of Persia. It's just that you will be under the authority of the prince of Greece. That's how these regime changes happen. And then oddly, he says, but there's no one who's going to stand firmly against these beast kingdoms with me except Michael, he's talking to Daniel, your prince, your prince. So what is happening here? Gabriel, which is the strength of El, he's fighting with just the strength of El. But there's one thing more that he needs to get through this obstruction. And most of the time when we, we get into those places, we know we're battling an enemy, but it really does feel like we're just facing an obstruction, like something's not moving. It's not like this. It's like something's just not moving here. In our perception, it goes on and on. And their perception is happening right as it should. But he needs Michael to help push through the prince of Persia to get to Daniel. Because remember, Michael, it's who is like El. Michamoka Be'elim. Adonai, who is like you, O Lord, among the Elim, the gods. Well, Michael, who is like El. Perfect. That tells you that El's reign is supreme. There is none beside him. There is none over him. He is one. He is only. He is the creator. Everything was created by his hand. It's the supremacy. It's the authority. He's the ultimate authority. There's nothing higher than him. And so when you say Michael, you're saying there is nothing higher than El. This is the authority that is needed along with the strength to push through. Because Michael can come along and say, Prince of Persia, we get you're doing your job, but this came straight from the throne and you're not above him. You're going to have to submit. And the Prince of Persia has to say, <laughs> okay, I'll let you through here. My time's up. It was a matter of dominion. This is what Michael is telling us. We have to pay attention to dominion. As we go forward a couple chapters, Daniel 12, verse 1, it says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard, and this is vital, Michael, 
who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. Michael is the guardian, the ministering angel of Israel. And so just imagine, you know, as we're looking at all these angels flying around in the book of Revelation, there is one guardian angel or ministering angel, whatever we want to call him, that Yeshua has at his disposal. And that's going to be the one thing that the beast kingdom cannot withstand. Does that make sense? If Michael could break through the prince of Persia, then Michael can also break through the red one. He can break through Edom. He can break through Rome. He can break through that final beast. So when he arises, the people will arise. Now, Yeshua has to descend. <laughs> uh, he's at the right hand of the father. But Michael, it's, it's, if he's the, the guardian over Israel, he's kind of been trampled down in the dust with us. As we go, so he goes. He says, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the rise of Michael is the rise of the house of Israel. Remember, there's none to compare with El. Michael is all about, there's no challenge to the authority of the throne. There's no challenger that can equal the authority of the throne. There is no challenger who can prevail over the throne. And so this attribute of Michael, who is like El, he is the, the prince over the principality of Israel. And at the end of days, he says, Israel's going to arise from tribulation. They're going to inherit the kingdom. Remember, Jacob's bringing them over, bringing them into their inheritance. And they are going to be part of that place of eternal power. But until then, and we don't dispatch angels, by the way, if the Holy One chooses to dispatch one on our behalf, fine. But just rest knowing you already have a ministering angel, and you already have Michael at your side in the place of your exile, in the night of your exile, in the wilderness of the peoples, he is your guardian, and he will stand guard over these beast principalities. There is nothing that can happen to you that the authority would have to come from the throne through Michael to get to you. And so that, that does, it helps us see this parallelism that we want to finish up here with. And it goes back to our, our verse that we took from the Song of the Sea, part of our liturgy. We typically do this pretty often. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Well, there's no one like him. Supreme authority. But read this, Deuteronomy 33, 29. Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you. Now, is this saying we are Elohim like, made in the image of? And this, remember, was said here in Deuteronomy 33. It's in the context of crossing over the Jordan to the inheritance. Remember, like the scented powders of the merchant coming up from the wilderness. Who is like you, Israel, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and he who is the sword of your majesty? Where do we get our majesty? From him. So your enemies will cringe before you 
and you will trample their high places. And so this is how we see we are the sons of Elohim. If we do his will and we do his word, like Yeshua was telling them at Hanukkah, my sheep know my voice. You're not my sheep. You're Esau's sheep because you're reading the word and you're not believing it. You're reading the word and you're twisting it. You're reading the word and you're trying to kill people with it. But he says, my sheep know my voice. They'll follow me no matter where I go. And if I lead them right back into the Garden of Eden, they'll be right behind me. I won't have to go fetching back and forth. They know me. And so we'll end with Exodus 15, 15 through 18. It tells us the end of the story. Then the chiefs of Edom, remember the red one, Esau, were terrified. The leaders of Moab, troublemakers, trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have despaired. Terror and dread, this is future tense, will fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over. That word there is avar. It's where we get Hebrew, one who's crossed over. Until your people pass over, Lord, until the people pass over whom you purchased. Remember the scented powders of the merchant? These have been purchased by Adonai. And it says it twice, until the people pass over. They passed over the Jordan with Yehoshua, and we're going to pass over the Jordan with Yeshua. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, which you have made as your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. His dominion, his power. So I hope that kind of strings some things together for you and shows how important that transition is from the dust of Abraham, of which there's countless people down to a, a more finite number of the scented powders of the house of Israel. It's a people who don't reckon themselves among the nations. The children of Abraham, not just through Isaac, but the children of Abraham are all out there among the nations. But there's a limited number who are going to be able to arise and come up out of that wilderness. So let's clarify a little bit uh, about these angels. Sometimes we're way too fascinated with angels when our fascination really needs to be focused upon the Holy One who created these angels to do these particular things. But I think since the angels are mentioned so frequently, especially in the book of Revelation, I think it really helps our reading. It gives us a better context for our reading if we understand a little bit how they do function. And sometimes if we understand what their function is, how they function, how they're commissioned, what their authority is and so forth, then maybe we can't, uh, that'll help us not to make mistakes because we misunderstand their role in our lives. But the thing to remember you know, about an angel is that it's a created being and it will be sent out with a mission. And sometimes that mission or that assignment has to do with what it controls, what it supervises. Um, you know, it talks about principalities and powers in Jude and Second Peter. What do we mean principalities and powers, especially since we're talking about English words as opposed to Hebrew words? Well, just to simplify, you know, a, um, a sar in Hebrew is a prince, but if we're pulling it over into English for understanding, okay, a prince is going to be the son 
of a king, typically. And it kind of goes back to Yeshua's statement, you are sons of Elohim. You are um, a result of, you were conceived by, created by. And so when we're talking about angels as the, the sons of Elohim, then the idea is uh, they will reflect some of the, the divine majesty that is required for them in their mission or in their role. And so if we go to Deuteronomy, we can get a really good example of how to view these angels. And we can see even the, the, the writers of the apocalypse in Revelation. Obviously, these writers are going out on these horses and they are given a specific mission to do. And that's the thing to remember about angels. They're very single-minded. And so in this case, he's not sending out one horseman to do the famine, the plague, the wild beast, and the sword. He's sending out multiple agents to accomplish these goals. And then you put all these things together. And of course, you have the, the altered judgments. And so if you ever hear of the altered judgments, remember altered the altar is going to represent judgment, by the way, the, the very nature of an altar. It represents judgment. And therefore, in Revelation, of course, um, you're going to see these judgments. The, the altar actually affirms the judgments. When they're spoken over the earth, the altar will actually speak and affirm the judgment. And I, I, it's such a wonderful trail to follow, to ask ourselves, why are the souls under the altar in the book of Revelation. Remember, what are they asking for? They're asking for judgment. How long, O oh Lord, until you're going to avenge our blood? And so the, the altar is typically going to be connected with some sort of judgment. Now, the incense altar is going to be a more refined place of judgment, but you don't reach the incense altar uh, until you go through the sacrificial altar. There has to be this preliminary judgment before you can stand under this refined judgment, these refined um, incense powders that are brought into the incense altar. You take the coals from the sacrificial altar, and then you place the powdered spices uh, up on the coals from the sacrificial altar. And then you can approach that inner altar, which is also going to be a judgment. And that's exactly, you know, they represent the prayers of the saints. But prayer in Hebrew, hitpalel, um, it means to judge yourself. And so that's that's a beautiful thing there. You're going in to this holy place, but you're going in with self-judgment. You're, you're judging yourself so that there will be no judgment entered against you in heaven. If we judge ourselves, there's no reason for heaven to judge us. Uh, if we make the proper choices, the proper changes, we we make the repentance that's required of us, then there's there's no need to fear the judgment of the throne. And of course, we're approaching a mercy seat as well. So that that is a definitely a comfort to those who are dwelling in the wilderness, because you know as we come up from the wilderness, it's not like the dust of Abraham that's being described. It's who is this that comes up from the wilderness with the scented powders of the merchant. This is a refinement. This is the house of Israel who is not reckoned among the nations. This is not just any old dust. This is the type of dust 
um, that is the, the spices that you would take in to the incense altar. This is the type of spices that have gone through a refinement in the wilderness. So how do angels pertain to this? Well, again, they they have that you will often see them around an altar, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed that in scripture, but you'll often see angels hanging out around altars. And if the altar represents sacrifice, if the altar represents judgment, then just imagine today out here in the wilderness of the people, when we do good deeds of sacrifice, when we do these good deeds of self-judgment, imagine there might be angels hanging around. We might be a favorable ground for a heavenly mission to be sent down to us or for heavenly help, like Paul talks about. He says, because of the angels, um, obedience draws angels on your behalf. But let's look at the four altar judgments. So if you do see angels or these celestial beings being dispatched in the book of Revelation in order to accomplish a purpose, you know in the Torah where the context of these altar judgments is. And so the the proto-prophecy of the altar judgments is Deuteronomy 32, 23 through 25. And it says, I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. And that's exactly what you see when the white horse rides out in Revelation. The rider is carrying a bow. And what do you put in a bow? But arrows. And he says, I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine. Famine is the first altar judgment. And the the Hebrew word for famine there means to be hungry. So it doesn't mean, I mean, it can mean that the weather is not favorable and everything dries up. But anything that would bring on hunger, widespread hunger, could be considered famine. And it says, and consumed by plague. All right. This is, um, you can put disease definitely into this category, plagues, um, all sorts of, of bodily strikes against you, such as maybe even um, what we would say is leprosy. It's salat. It's a mark. It's a strike against you. And what you'll see too is these four altar judgments will sometimes overlap because the next altar judgment, he says, consumed by plague and bitter destruction and the teeth of beasts, I will send upon them. Well, look at the overlap here between a plague and a beast. Sometimes a plague can be the result of a wild beast. What do we say when we're sick? Oh, you know, I have the flu bug. I have a bug, I have a, a stomach bug. Well, you do. You have this little living creature that, that has attacked you and it's, it's wreaking havoc upon your system. So the, the plague of wild beasts can overlap here with the, the altar judgment of plague itself. So we have famine, plague, and the teeth of beasts. Wild beasts can also refer to jealous people envious people. Like Paul said, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. And remember at Ephesus, he was preaching the gospel and people were turning away from the worship of the goddess Diana. It cut into their little economic guild. And so they attacked Paul because he was destroying their economy with the good news of Yeshua. And he calls these people wild beasts. And so does it have to be literally a wild beast? Sometimes it can be exactly what Paul is calling it. 
It can be those who are very malicious and they attack anyone who is spreading the good news of Yeshua. And then the final one, it says, with the venom of crawling things of the dust, outside the sword will bereave and inside terror. So the last altar judgment there in Deuteronomy is the sword. Now, as, as you see these in different places in scripture, you might see they're in a different order. You will see them in a different order. If you see them in the book of Revelation, I think what you're going to see is, first of all, you're going to have probably the, the wild beasts, and then you're going to have the sword, then you're going to have the famine, and then finally the the pale horse, which is death. I, I think that's going to be the plague. You know, I'm not, I'm not married to that idea. I think there's a couple of them there you could switch around and still make a case for it. At any rate, you will see them in a different order, just like you see the horses in a different order and other places in scripture. And so typically, I think when the the order of it is rearranged, then it probably does have a significance to that in terms of the time period and what it in which it's set. And then just as an example of how you see these altar judgments in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 5, 12 through 17. And here you see the thirds. Remember, you, you see judgments and thirds in the book of Revelation. Well, that's a reflection of this passage right here. It says one third of you will die by plague. And the plague is also sometimes translated as pestilence uh, because the, the word there, the Hebrew word is devar. And in context, often that is a pestilence on a beast. And so you can see the overlap between the beast's and the plague there, the pestilence. And it's a contronym, which means it's a word that can have two opposite meanings. Devar is word, like Devar Elohim, the word of God. But Devar is a pestilence. And that's what happens when you violate the Devar Elohim. So the first here, it says, a third of you will die by the plague or be consumed by famine, Ra'af, which is hunger, among you. One third will fall by the sword, which is Cherev, in Hebrew, it means to make thirsty. Uh, so the sword can even be part of a famine. If you're getting thirsty because the, the rain is not falling, then you could experience both famine and sword because the sword is cherub, it makes thirsty. It, and it can mean, you know, like conflict, military conflict. And, and one third, I will scatter to every wind and I will unsheath the sword behind him. Thus, my anger will be spent and I will satisfy my wrath on them and I will be appeased. Then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my wrath upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and a reproach among the nations which surround you in the sight of all who pass by. So it will be a reproach, a reviling, a warning, and an object of horror to the nations who surround you when I execute judgments against you in anger, wrath, and rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. Right There's one section of that. The, the good news there, <laughs> we want to find some good news, one-third of you by plague or famine. That's a third. Another third, it says, will fall by the sword. But then that third third, <laughs> that's the remnant. He says, yeah, the sword's going to be unleashed behind you. Um, you're going to have to run, but that third is being spared in order to be a reproach among the nations. And of course, the, the goal of you know keeping that remnant of the third is to bring them to repentance. Right. So let's look at the, the next part of the verses. It says, when I send against them the deadly arrows of famine, 
which were for the destruction of those whom I will send to destroy you. Then I will also intensify the famine upon you and break the staff of bread. All right. So here in the context, he's talking about arrows of famine. We tend to associate famine with the black horse because he's calling out a day's wages for a day's worth of either barley bread or wheat bread. Same price. It's a denarius. So you would have to work all day just to get your daily bread. But here in context, Ezekiel's identifying this with arrows of famine. And so when we see the white horse ride out and the riders carrying a bow, conquering and to conquer, yes, he, he will have some work to do. Um, and, and part of it is going to be plague. And, and that's why I think we, we could see this plague as a wild beast, but we can also see it literally as the, the pestilence on a beast. But these arrows of famine, they work with it. And so as the white horse is riding out with the arrows of famine, it's like he's setting the stage for the black horse to be activated, where he like cause and effect, like the arrows are going to be the cause. And then you see the black horse rider ride out and you can see the effect of the arrows of the famine. He says, in, in other words, there's going to be an intensity that there's going to be a growing severity of the famine as it, this cycles through the white horse and the black horse. He says, I'm going to break the staff of bread. And this is exactly, again, what the rabbis have said about the footsteps of Messiah, that you'll have a less area of rainfall in the first year. The second year will be worse. And the third year will be really, 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 really bad worldwide. That the third year of the footsteps or what we would call the tribulation, the famine will be severe because the water will be so scarce by then. And so if that's so, then we can see why the, the progression of the white horse and the black horse and then the red horse in Revelation. And then he goes on and he talks about the other two. He says, moreover, I will send on you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you of children. Plague, which again is devere, and bloodshed also will pass through you. And I will bring the sword on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. So again, what does this have to do with anything? Well, again, we can, we can attach the work that's being done as these four horsemen ride out to these um divinely ordained beings, created beings who are being dispatched to do his will, to obey his orders, to execute his orders upon the earth, each of them having a specific job. Another example of how an angel does a specific job, Revelation 16, 5 through 7. And this is just, you know, crazy accurate. It says, then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, See, the angel is in charge of the water specifically. You were just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. All right. So in this particular example, we have an angel who's specifically in charge of the waters. And we know there's going to be judgment upon the waters in the book of Revelation. And so as he is being given this mission, then he's affirming the just, the just decision that's been made concerning the earth. He says, you are just in these judgments. 
And he's saying, yes, it is a vengeance. It is a, it's payback because they've shed the blood of your saints and your prophets. And then there's an affirmation here, our second witness here, the altar responds, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So again, you see the affiliation here with judgment and the altar. And then that helps us again to understand why the souls who are awaiting judgment are stored under the altar. That's specifically the association as they await, they're awaiting the judgment. So once the judgment is executed upon the earth, then that prepares the way for the next stage. You know, they're, they're, it says they're given a white robe and they're told to wait for a little while. Well, what are they waiting for? The resurrection, because these white robes allowed them to function as they're awaiting the resurrection. It's, I call it a space suit. If you're, if you're going to function in the Garden of Eden, then you can't just function as a soul. You, you have to have some form, and, and the rabbis say, this is what these white robes are for. It gives you a form so that you can function as you're awaiting under the altar, the, the heavenly altar. And then uh, another instance here, Revelation 6, 7 through 8, it says, when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Okay, so right here, you see the four altar judgments again when the the fourth seal is broken. And remember, the fourth horse or the ashen horse is death. And as you picture a menorah, you, you picture the seven branch menorah. The, the three branches on one side and the three branches on the other side, they were extensions of that middle pillar. It started with one piece of beaten gold. So these three and these three, they are simply aspects of what is in the middle. They are, they are more definite attributes of what is in the middle. And so what is in the middle on this particular ride? Well, death and Hades. And notice how the he has a name. And remember, the name reflects the mission. What is this angel assigned to do? What is this um, celestial being, this created being, what is he assigned to do? In this particular case, he's functioning as that middle pillar of judgment. And so his name is death. This is what he's going out to accomplish. And so the, the color of the horse is ashen, or it's a yellowish green. It reflects the color of a beard when a person has leprosy when he has this strike against him, when he has this mark. And authority is given to them over a fourth of the earth. Apart from this authority, they have no authority. And that's what I think Jude and Peter are reminding us when they say, you know, don't be silly, don't be rebuking and reviling heavenly majesties because you don't know what they were dispatched to do. If they're obstructing you, maybe there's a reason. Maybe you're you're going headlong into a direction that Adonai does not want you to go. And he's trying to turn you aside for a reason and, and turn you back into the proper path. Or maybe you're about to run into something that's going to be for your harm. And so that angel might be dispatched to become an obstacle in your way. And in that case, yeah, kind of like a Satan because Satan means an adversary, but he's coming with all the majesty of the holy throne to save your life. So he says, be careful what you're binding and loosing, because you might be binding and loosing against the will of the Father. 
you have to discern that these are created beings and the devil's not around every corner. Uh, sometimes the devil's in the mirror when we're not obeying the word. And so he, he has this name that's assigned to him that reflects his mission, specifically what he's supposed to do. And therefore, that name reflects what the mission is. The name will reflect the particular authority that he has been given. This is authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth. All right. So with the name death or Hades, now they have authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with these four altered judgments, the sword, the famine, the pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. They're not acting outside of their authority. They're acting within their authority. So if we can get a handle on what these angels are doing and how they operate, then we can learn something about ourselves. Because if we are these fiery ministers of Elohim, and if we are sons of Elohim, And if we actually are Elohim, not in the sense that we are God or gods, but in the sense that we are sons of Elohim, we are created beings of Elohim, we are judges appointed. And you say, well, what am I a judge of? You're a judge of yourself. That's the important thing. Hit palel, prayer, judge yourself. And so our mission is to learn the word, proclaim the word, and disciple others according to the supreme will of the Father. Anything we do within that arena, we have the authority that goes with it because that's called upon the house of Jacob. And and that tells you kind of where your authority is and where your authority isn't. If we walk in that authority, if we walk in the authority of the name of Yeshua, bringing salvation, then we're absolutely walking in the will of the Father. you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.